Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, a CME podcast series where each week we translate today's late-breaking clinical research and news into tomorrow's practice. I'm Dr. Frank Domino, professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts Chan Medical School and editor-in-chief of the 5-Minute Clinical Consult. Be sure to visit primed.com slash podcast after the discussion for more information about today's article and to claim CME CE credit. Sasha is a 68-year-old retired teacher who comes in with a fever and a cough. She tells you her husband was just diagnosed with COVID and she's worried she has it as well. A rapid test in your office confirms her suspicions. She has a history of obesity with a BMI of 34. Additionally, she has high blood pressure, diabetes, and stage 3 chronic kidney disease. She has received two doses of the mRNA vaccine last spring and a booster this past December. At present, she's feeling pretty well, oxygenating well, and her temp, though, is 100.1. She's very upset about having COVID because she knows she's at high risk for having a complication from the infection. What can we offer her? Hi, this is Frank Domino, and joining me this morning is Dr. Alan Ehrlich, Associate Professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the UMass Chan Medical School and Executive Editor of Dynamed. Alan, this is an everyday occurrence for us all. So let's start off with just reminding the audience, what are the risk factors for severe COVID-19 infection? So the risk factors for someone who's who's only got mild illness in the first place, and that's often... Uh, on the basis of, you know, how are they oxygenating? What's the respiratory rate like? But if you're someone who is generally having a mild illness as Sasha is, the risk that it will progress to develop more severe illness include things like the uh, body mass index. If the BMI is over 30, uh, that's particularly risky. And even over 25, which isn't that hard to do in, in the United States, can be a risk factor for progression. Age over 65 or age less than one, pregnancy, and then there are a variety of diseases that confer extra risk. These include diabetes, cardiovascular disease, including hypertension or any type of congenital heart disease, chronic kidney disease, any type of chronic lung disease, anyone who's immunocompromised or on immunosuppressive therapy. Uh, this would also include people with sickle cell disease, people who have neuro developmental disorders such as cerebral palsy, and anyone who's on uh, any kind of medically related uh, technology dependence, if they've got a trach or a gastrostomy tube or things like that, these are all the risk factors for progression to severe illness. All right. Well, um, as is also common in our office, um, people are looking for treatments. And and we feel like we need to do something. They're anxious and want to do something. Just last night on call, I had a patient saying, please tell me, give me something to do. Uh, the FDA provided emergency youth authorization for two oral antivirals, but as yet, they're not clinically available, at least anywhere that I work. What else can we do? What other treatments are available for Sasha? When you think about people who have uh, COVID and you're thinking about what treatment options there are, you have to separate the people who are being admitted from people who are being treated strictly on an outpatient basis. Drugs like remdesivir are solely for inpatients. But on the outpatient side, you can have these oral agents. Paxlovid is a combination of two other uh, antiviral agents, and this is indicated for those over 12 years of age 
who weigh at least uh, 40 kilograms. And this is given twice a day for five days. Alternatively, there's molnupiravir, and that is dosed at 800 milligrams, which are four 200 milligram capsules every 12 hours for five days. And both of these should be within five days of symptom onset. Another option are the monoclonal antibodies. And these are given as a one-time infusion and should be started as soon as possible after symptom onset and you have a positive antigen or PCR test. What's interesting about both of these uh, treatments is there's about a 5 or 6 percentage point reduction in hospitalization or death within about a month. One of the problems, you mentioned difficulty with access to the oral agents. I have not been able to get them either for my patients at this point. With the monoclonal antibodies, they are available, but supply is restricted. And so many of the regional centers where you would refer your patient to have priority lists. And the highest risk are for people who are unvaccinated over the age of 75. And quite honestly, where I am, there are very few of those individuals. In addition, you have people who are over 65 or unvaccinated who have another risk factor or someone who's immunocompromised regardless of their immunization status. So there's a whole list, and you can refer these patients to the regional center who will then, based on their supply, try and prioritize the patients. What's interesting is, okay, those are the only approved treatments, but there are a lot of things that have been tried. We've all heard about things in the news, and you know some of these have more uh, promise than others, but none have received any type of formal authorization yet uh, from the FDA. One of our former guests, Paul Sachs, infectious disease at Harvard, has talked about the use of fluvoxamine. Um, Can you give us an update on the role of fluvoxamine uh, in the treatment of acute COVID-19 infection? So as uh, I'm sure most of the listeners know, fluvoxamine is an SSRI antidepressant. So you might say, well, what are we using that for? Obviously, in our case, Sasha's pretty upset, but that doesn't mean we should start her on an SSRI. What makes it potentially useful for COVID is that fluvoxamine tends to bind to something called the sigma-1 receptor. And this is involved in the regulation of cytokines. And I think most people know that the clinical deterioration due to COVID is often resulted of something called the cytokine storm. And so the ability to suppress that cytokine storm may prevent the progression. A preliminary randomized trial of about 150 patients with COVID who were having some hypoxia but didn't need to be hospitalized in the St. Louis area was published in JAMA last June and showed that no one in the fluvoxamine group had clinical deterioration within two weeks. And that was compared to about 9% who did have some type of clinical deterioration in the placebo group. So this served as the initial evidence. And then there was a major trial uh, published just earlier uh, in January of this year called the TOGETHER trial out of Brazil. And it had about 1,500 participants. Again, all the patients had COVID. And here they had at least one risk factor for progression to severe disease. But they did not require hospitalization at the start of the trial. And they were given fluvoxamine 100 milligrams twice a day for 10 days. And these people were followed for a month. So a bigger trial with longer follow-up. The main outcome was either hospitalization or being monitored in the ED for more than six hours. It's interesting why they went 
chose that monitoring the ED, it's because they were having so much COVID that people were being sacked up in the ED with unable to be admitted to the hospital. So this wasn't you're in the waiting room for six hours and then you're evaluated in the ED. It's you're in the ED and you have to be monitored there for at least six hours because there's no bed. And the primary outcome of a progression to needing one of these uh, interventions was 11% in the fluvoxamine group versus 16% in the placebo. So again, about a 5% absolute difference. So all of these ages we're talking about have about the same net effect on an absolute risk reduction basis. All right, so this study adds to a smaller study that looks like, at the very least, it lowered emergency room uh, attendance or hospitalization. What are we going to do for Sasha? Are we going to think about prescribing uh, this agent, uh, considering that it's still somewhat experimental? So first of all, Sasha's at high risk for severe disease on the basis of her age, her BMI of 34, her comorbidities, including diabetes, high blood pressure, and CKD. She did get the immunization, so that's a positive factor for her. I think, from my perspective, if she were a candidate for the monoclonal antibodies in her region, that would be a good option. Um, these have a pretty good track record, and uh, again, they were one of the first things to be authorized, and so uh, I think the safety has been uh, adequately demonstrated. She would also be a candidate for the oral antiviral medications if you can find them. Um, again, that would also be good because they have the emergency use authorization. If none of that is available, then I think fluvoxamine can be considered as long as the patient's aware that this lacks FDA approval for this indication. You have to be careful with off-label use, however, and we need to only look at things like hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin to see how controversial these things can get. A lot of times things look promising and then more data comes out or sometimes there's some type of malfeasance in the research and people start saying, yeah, I thought that was a good idea. Turns out not to be. So what I can say at this point is that the strength of the evidence for fluvoxamine seems better than with any of the other agents that are being uh, tried at the moment that I'm aware of. And interestingly, a doctor in Minnesota apparently has um, applied to the FDA for uh, emergency use authorization for fluvoxamine. Typically, drug companies will make this application, but as fluvoxamine is generic, it doesn't seem like there's any drug company that's interested, and so this doc took it upon himself to put the application in, and it's currently pending approval. Alan, I, I think you're you're touching on a point that we're all feeling, that patients um, come to us looking for help, they're anxious, they want to do something, and what you've described here is a research protocol and good outcomes that may become a, a standard of care in the future. Till then, I agree with you. This is off-label. You and the patient have to go into this eyes wide open. And there are trials around the country, if not the world, that you can register a patient for. If you're going to go down the fluvoxamine path, you might consider enrolling them in that trial rather than prescribing it yourself, both to protect you and the patient and to help us all garner more information. Completely agree, Frank. Thanks so much for discussing this. This is, this is pertinent to our everyday practice. Thanks, Frank. Practice pointer. Using fluvoxamine may help prevent the need for hospitalization in patients with COVID-19, but as of yet, the FDA has not approved this treatment. Consider enrolling your patient in a fluvoxamine trial if they're interested. 
For more information on how to enroll your patient in a fluvoxamine trial, check out the landing page with the link. Join us next time when we talk about the appropriate treatment of fever in young children. Thank you for listening to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, brought to you by PrimeMed. To claim credit and receive additional information about the article referenced in today's episode, visit primed.com slash podcasts and see you next week.